And now, let us turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. For the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shaalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So let us now go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has just come now to the city. Because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them, on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, 
Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof. And he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called on Saul on the roof. Get up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And they were going down, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we ask that you would open up your word for us, that in it we might see your wisdom and your will, and that in it we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. For we long to be with him, We long for the day when he will return, and we will feast at the wedding feast of the Lamb with him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. One of the ways in which we most deceive ourselves is in the fact that we often think we know what is important and what is not. We know which portions of our lives are important and should matter to God and which are ordinary and do not really matter too much. And a corollary to this is we think we know what we need in our lives. We know the answer for our lives. This text that we have before us this morning teaches us otherwise. It teaches us that God is sovereign in the midst of the ordinary and the everyday. Not just that he knows what's going to happen, but that he is working his great purpose and will through the ordinary and the mundane. And so this morning in chapter 9, I would like us to see three things. First, we see a warning for us through Israel. Be careful what you wish for. You may recall that Israel wished... And asked for a king. Here we see that they should be careful what they wish for. 
Secondly, we see the truly sovereign God who attends over all of life. And then finally, we see the truly compassionate God. That God is compassionate because of who he is, not because of what we have done. Be careful what you wish for. The truly sovereign God and the truly compassionate God. Let's begin then by looking at why we should be careful what we wish for. Here we see a king for Israel. This is a new section of this book of 1 Samuel. The very first phrase highlights this for us. Chapter 9 begins, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Now, this should remind you, this should be reminiscent to your ears of the way the book opened itself. You remember Samuel's father, Elkanah, was introduced in a similar way. There was a man. Now, remember that when the Bible was originally written, not only were there no chapter and verse divisions, it was written in one long scroll. And so in order to highlight divisions or new sections of a book, authors would use verbal clues. This is one of them. We are now entering into a new section. And because of that, we are about to have a second main character introduced to us. That is Saul. Now I'm going to give you a warning here this morning. Oftentimes it is the preacher's job to make sure you know as much as possible about the Bible. What I'm going to tell you now this morning is you know too much of the Bible. You grew up on stories of Saul and David and Goliath, of spears and slings and arrows. You already think you know about Saul. I'm going to ask you to forget that for a moment. And let the author introduce Saul to us. Because if we already think we know who Saul is and what all of this is about, we will miss what the Bible is trying to tell us in this chapter as it introduces Saul to us. It takes a whole chapter simply to introduce this man to us. The Lord is teaching you and me something this morning as this story unfolds. Now, let's not forget how we got to this place. Israel had never been ruled by kings before. And in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of failed leadership, they looked for an answer, and they looked for an answer from the nations around them. They had refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They had doubted God's provision for themselves, and so they had asked king like all of the other kings so that they would be like all the nations. That's the setup. And so now, God gives them a king. He gives them exactly what they asked for. Because you see, Israel didn't just ask for any old king. In chapter 8, verse 20, they wanted a king so that they would be like the other nations. And so as we are introduced to Saul, we are immediately reminded of this request. Because you see, Saul's name itself means asked for. It means desired. 
It's almost as if the author, as he introduces us to Saul, before we know anything about him, is telling you, here's the guy that Israel asked for. Everything that we saw that was problematic in chapter 8 is now coming true in chapter 9. You want it? You got it. Be careful what you ask for. Now, we will see in a minute that Saul is admirable by all worldly standards. That is, the standards of the nations. And this solidifies for us the kind of king he will be. And one thing that we should not forget in the midst of this (coughs) is that the Lord is still in charge. Just because God is giving them what they asked for doesn't mean that God is giving up. You see, we're used to that in our dealings, right? When someone asks for something over and over and over again, moms and dads, you're used to this, aren't you? It's a constant refrain from the children. We want this, we want this, we want this, we want this. And eventually you say, all right, you want it? You got it. And then what do you usually say? You're on your own. And you walk away. Not so God. God is going to teach Israel something here. He's going to teach us something here. But he's not abandoning his people. He doesn't give up. This is actually a part of God's greater plan to teach his people. So again, I want to warn you, don't jump ahead in the story. Let it unfold before you. God is going to give them the king that they want. And they will learn how foolish it is to reject God. Well, God gives them a king. But we also see that this king is to be a king like the nations. So as we are introduced to Saul, we learn things about him. We learn he is a man of Benjamin and a Benjaminite. Now, you may think that the Bible's being repetitive here, but it's actually telling us two things about him. He is a man of Benjamin, that is, he lives in the area occupied by the tribe of Benjamin. So if you have a Bible atlas in your back of your Bible, you will notice that the tribe of Benjamin sits in the center of the promised land. And he is a Benjaminite, which means he is descended from the tribe that comes from Jacob's favored son, Benjamin, the second of his sons with Rachel. So what does this mean? It means, first, it's an excellent political choice, worldly speaking. God has chosen someone right from the center of Israel to help keep the balance of power amongst the 12 tribes. There's the powerful tribe of Judah to the south, the powerful tribe of Ephraim to the north, and the king comes from the center to keep Israel together. He also comes from, while it's a small tribe, it's a well-respected tribe. After all, it was one of Jacob's favorite sons. And so, politically speaking, Saul could not have been a better choice. We also learn that he is the son of Kish, who is a man of wealth, we learn in verse 2. Now, as we read the story... Sometimes I think we're not that impressed with Kish. It doesn't say Kish had 40 chariots. 
or a bright red Cadillac. It says he has a farm and some donkeys. Yawn. But actually what you have to understand is, is that that's how you counted wealth in ancient Israel. Real wealth was found in having land. And yes, in having livestock. They were very valuable, worth a lot of money. So much so that when a few of them go off wandering, Kish sends his son to go find them. He doesn't say, oh well, donkeys come, donkeys go. No, he says, go find them. Bring them back. So Kish is a man of wealth. Saul is also the kind of man who makes a great first impression. Saul looks fabulous from a distance. Look at how he's described. He is a handsome young man. As a matter of fact, there's nobody more handsome than Saul. Now, the word here is interesting that's used in the Hebrew. The word here that's used is tov. You may remember it from a phrase, mazel tov, which means good luck in Hebrew. So the word actually means good. But in this sense, it doesn't mean that Saul is morally good. This word can also mean handsome or pretty. And what it means is, from the outside, Saul looks good. As you look at him from a distance, he looks perfect until he opens his mouth. There's one other thing about Saul that we learn. He's tall. From his shoulders upwards, he is taller than any among the people. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and think of the last time you remember an Israelite being described as tall. I'll wait. No, actually I won't because it'll be a long time. Because there is no other Israelite in all of the Bible who is ever described as tall. Now, the Bible does describe people as tall, doesn't it? Who does it describe as tall? The pagan giants in the land, doesn't it? Goliath is tall. Various pagan kings are described as being tall. As a matter of fact, every other time in the Bible that someone's height is emphasized, it is because of the fear that they strike in God's people. They're God's enemies. They're the nations. So Saul is like the nations, even in his height, and to look at him. Saul is exactly the kind of king that the nations would have. God is answering their request to the letter. Well, let's now turn and see the story itself. And in this story, we see the truly sovereign God. And we begin with what I call a little story. Now, remember our context. There is a political revolution underway. The Philistines are threatening an attack. The Ammonites are ready to wage war on Israel. Israel is crying out for a king. Samuel is very upset with what is going on. And we move out to the country. And we have the story of life on the farm. Now, this is out in the country, just an ordinary day on the farm. Now, if we didn't know any better, we would think the author was wasting our time. Why doesn't he get on with the important stuff? Come on, there's kings to be crowned. There's wars to be fought. Let's go, let's go. You know, 
Our story is some donkeys wander off. Now, what could be more ordinary? Actually, what could be more boring than that? Some animals wandering off. And then Saul and his servant go looking. And even the story of how they go looking is boring. The text tells us they go to one land. And guess what? No donkeys. They go to another land. They ask around. Guess what? No donkeys. They go to a third place and ask around. Guess what? No donkeys. Can you picture if this was a film? A big, wide, panning shot of the hill country and two men walking. And you say to your spouse, I'm going to go get the popcorn now. Now's the time I'm not going to miss anything. This is boring. That's what's going on. Verse after verse after verse. No success at all. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and think about your own life. Doesn't your own life seem like this a lot of the time? Day after day, just ordinarily going on, you get up, you make breakfast, you eat, you drive to work, you get ready for school, you do some schoolwork, you come home, you make dinner, you eat, you do a little laundry, you clean a room, you get ready for bed, you get up, you do it all over again, right? Seems like much of our life is like that. And we begin to ask ourselves, where is God in the midst of that humdrum and every day? You know, laundry doesn't exactly scream, thus saith the Lord. Cleaning up the kitchen table doesn't exactly say God's decrees. It's the way we live most of our life. But you see, the problem is, our mistake is thinking that God only sees us when we can easily see Him. When instead, God is ever sovereign over our affairs. And so you see, there's a big story, not behind, but in the middle of the little story. And our first hint comes to us at verse 5. When they came to the land of Ziph. Now your ears should perk up right now. You say to me, Pastor, what's with Ziph? It's just another one of these Bible names that are hard to pronounce. I'm not even sure you're pronouncing it right. Why should that get my attention? Well, it's because back in chapter 1, we learn that Zuf is the great, great, great grandfather of Samuel. This is his town. This is his land. It's named after his great, great, great grandfather. And if it's named after his family, who do you think is going to be living in this land? Why, Samuel, of course. Now, don't look down too quickly. I know he appears in the text. But your interest should be piqued. You see, that's what the author wants us to see. He doesn't want you to overlook these details. He wants you to, to see it and to see God in the midst of all of these little things. So now, maybe, after all this wandering, now maybe we will see something from our tall, handsome Mr. Israel. Now maybe he's on to something. He's come to a place where something will happen. 
Because you see, the Bible tells us what to expect, what is going on here. And we see it in verses 15 through 17. Look with me if you would. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. Notice what God does not say. Tomorrow, Samuel, by some unbelievable coincidence, somebody's going to wander into your town. You might want to take advantage of that. That's not what he says. What does God say? I will send. And he says it beforehand. Now, what that means is everything that we read before that that was casual, that was ordinary, now takes on great significance, doesn't it? Why? Because now we know all of those things were ordained by God to bring Saul to Samuel. It's the Lord who's in charge. God is not just in charge of the big stuff. God is in charge of the small stuff, too. Because you see, the small stuff is what makes the big stuff. God is in charge of all of the details. (coughs) Do you believe that God is sovereign? That means that he's in control. And he doesn't need any help from fate. He doesn't need any help from luck. He is working together all things for his glory. And so what that means is, now all of the details make sense. The donkeys just happen to wander off at this time. Saul just happens to wander into Zuf. The servant just happens to mention that there's a seer in this town. They just happen to come into the town when Samuel is there. Because remember, Samuel makes a circuit throughout Israel. He just happens to be in town. And they just happen to come to the gate and literally bump into Samuel. It's all a sense of gigantic coincidence, right? No. You see, the world would have you believe that. That everything in your life and all of your value is just a sense of random activities of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And it means nothing at the end of the day. But what 1 Samuel 9 teaches us is that God is sovereign and in control. In every detail of our lives, he is working together his decree, his plan. Now that you see this, will it affect the way you look at your life? Do you really have any wasted time in your life? Are there wasted events that are of no importance? Instead, would you rather look to find God in all of the ordinary and the everyday of your life? You see, we talk about providence, and we even capitalize it, don't we? To refer to the mysterious, wonderful ways of God. But really, isn't providence just the way that God provides, the root of the word, the way that he provides for his people, Through events? You see, God is constantly providing for us through the ordinary and the everyday. We may not think that's the way God should do it. But His ways are not our ways. 
Isaiah 55 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Now this story also tells us something about what God is doing through Saul. Remember the description of Saul, that he was of great height, and that linked him with the enemies of Israel, with the nations of the world. But there is something else that we learn about Saul in this everyday story. We learn he really doesn't have much of an ability to shepherd, does he? You see, he's following around these donkeys, and he doesn't know where to look for them. He doesn't know what kind of grass they like, or what kind of water they drink, or how quickly they like to run, or if they like the brambles or the bushes. Or the open areas. He doesn't know where to look. You could just imagine in the story, he's bumbling, going around. Well, I guess they're not here. Let's ask somebody else. I guess they're not here. Now, why is this significant? Well, first, I think it tells us something about Paul. Many of you know that my family has a dog. And as I'm fond of telling them, the dog is not my dog. I don't have to clean up after the dog. It's not my dog. I'm not exactly what you call an animal person. But I still know when my dog barks because he wants to go outside that I go and open the door. I've been around my dog a while. I know what he wants. I know when he's barking like crazy at the front door, even if I can't see someone, someone's there. I know my dog. Saul doesn't know his animals. He's no shepherd. And the problem with this is, think about the way the Bible talks about shepherds. Think of who are shepherds in the Bible. Abraham. Moses. David. Jesus is the good shepherd. You see, the Bible gives us a spiritual link between shepherding and pastoring. It's the reason we call pastors Pastor. If you didn't know where that word comes from, the word pastor comes from the Greek word to shepherd. Obviously, Saul has no ability in this. He has no sense of his animals. He's actually ready to give up and leave them behind. And this is the first impression we get of Saul. Who's leading this expedition to look for the donkeys? Who's in charge? It's the servant, isn't it? He's the one calling the shots. Now later on, we're going to see this come to fruition. Don't be surprised when Saul can't make a decision. When Saul follows bad advice. When Saul doesn't care for the people underneath him. What God is doing here in chapter 9 is he's laying open the character of the king of the nations that Israel said they wanted. There's a third thing that we learn about Saul. He goes into this town, and he's ignorant of who Samuel is. He doesn't even know there's a seer in this town. The servant has to tell him, maybe we should go to this town. There's a seer that is a prophet. Now, that's interesting, 
Because you may recall in 1 Samuel 3.20, we were told all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that the Lord had established Samuel as a prophet. Apparently, all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba except Saul. Saul doesn't even know there's an unnamed prophet in this town. And then, when he's told there's a prophet, he thinks, well, what do you do with a prophet? Well, you bribe him. How can we talk to the prophet? We don't have any money to bribe him with. Now, the servant overcomes that, but again, think about what this says about Saul. Now, it's actually, it's humorous. Could you imagine? Tall, dark, and handsome, Mr. Olympia Saul, sauntering into the city, and he runs into Samuel, and he says, Excuse me, could you tell me where the prophet lives? Can you imagine the look on Samuel's face? It must be priceless. Now, in my imagination, I think Saul's got to be really slow on the uptake. Because I picture Samuel wearing one of those long flowing robes like mom used to make. He's got the big long beard. He's got the staff. He's got the prophet look. You know, it's kind of like the mom look on steroids. You know, you can't miss that. And Saul's like, well, do you know where he lives? What does this tell us about the leader that's going to be leading Israel? (coughs) Now, why does God send them Saul? The easy answer is because God is giving them what they want. But that's true, but there's even more at work to this. And I think in verse 17, we see what's going on here. In verse 17, the Lord tells Samuel, Here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now I'm going to do something this morning that I don't do often. So mark it in your books. There's actually a translation issue here. The verb restrain is translated by some other translations as rule. Who will rule over you. And the reason is, is because the English verb rule makes perfect sense in that sentence, doesn't it? And restrain is a little bit weird. Sounds funny. There's only one problem with translating it as rule. This verb is a pretty common verb. It occurs throughout all of the Old Testament. And in all of the occasions in the Old Testament, this is the only place that anyone ever translates it rule. Every other place it's translated restrain. And so I think our translation has it right this morning. So what is God trying to tell us? What he's trying to tell us is, is that God is giving Israel Saul to restrain them from being who they should be. They're going to see that Saul, having a king like the nations, is holding them back. If you'll forgive a turn of phrase, they can't be the Israel that they were meant to be. They're being restrained back because of their leadership. Because, quite frankly, Saul's not up to the task. Rick Phillips, a PCA pastor, puts it very well in his commentary. He says, we recognize Saul, don't we? Saul is among us today as the executive who runs the company into the ground and then demands a lavish bonus. Or the politician who masters the art of speaking politely, but never quite tells the truth. The souls of the world have little confidence at the actual job at hand. 
but only the carefully cultivated impression of superiority. That's Saul to a T. That's God's sovereignty. Thirdly and finally, though, the Lord does not leave us to think that he has abandoned us because we see the truly compassionate God in this text this morning. We see the God who knows our need. God is disciplining Israel, but he does not forget them. He knows their needs. He is disciplining them, but he does not abandon them because why does he send them Saul? Yes, it is to teach them a lesson. But he also says it's because they need saving. I've sent this man to save them from the Philistines. They have cried out to me and I have heard their cry. You see, God has not changed his opinion on whether it's good to have a king or not. In verse 16... When God says, you shall appoint this man to be a prince over Israel. He has not all of a sudden become pro-king. No. God is reiterating that he is merciful. The reality is that God is showing mercy to his people. The problem is we find it all too easy to believe that God's help to us depends on our behavior. What we must realize is that the fact of our relationship with God does not depend on us. It depends on Him. And the way in which God deals with us does take into account our actions and our behavior. But it does not set the parameters for our relationship with Him. God recognizes Israel's needs here. And he will not let Israel go. Remember the context. Israel has rebelled against God. They've rejected him. God knows this. He's told us this. Israel is actively seeking to be like the nations. This is specifically what Israel was called not to be. What would we expect to happen here? Well, if you want to be like them, fine. I'll treat you like I treat Egypt. Right? You're on your own. Don't look at me. That's what we expect. But the good news of the gospel is that the Lord's compassion is not stopped by Israel's stupidity. Israel is stubborn. And brothers and sisters, so are we. Israel is foolish. And so are we. Israel has chosen what is wrong. And so do we. We choose what is harmful for ourselves and others. But God will not let go of his people. Look at verse 16. Three times, over and over again, how does he refer to Israel? He says, my people. My people. My people. Over and over again. We may wander. We may think we are better off without God. But he will not let us go. In conclusion... 
This is your great comfort in life and death. That the Lord never lets go of those who are in Jesus. Now that does not mean he will ignore all of your foolish choices. But what it does mean is each and every day, in all of the small things of life, God is at work bringing you to himself and holding you close to himself. Do you know this loving, sovereign God? There is no one like him. He is the God of the Bible revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. (coughs) This is the Lord that you are called to believe in, to love, and to serve. Let's pray.